0: Thank you, Steve. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it is great uh, to see you all. My name's Ian. I'm also one of the ministers of the church here. Uh, my wife, Jay, and I have been away for a few days this week, and uh, we're glad to be home. Um, look, at, uh, we've had all four seasons like in, in a space of a few days. That's what you get on the East Coast, isn't it? And this time of year. So a little bit of sunburn and a few hailstones but we're glad to be home. Um, we're starting a new short series today entitled Stories of Change. And our aim in this little series, six weeks including today, is to highlight the crucial importance of the Christian idea of conversion. When I use the word conversion, I'm talking about what, what, that, that's a word to describe what happens when someone becomes a real Christian. They're converted. We speak of their conversion. How does that happen? Why is it important? What does it mean? Uh, after this week, so starting next week, in other words, we're going to be in the New Testament book of Acts. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the next book is the book of Acts. It's the story, really, of the early church just after the time of Jesus. And we're going to consider, over the next five weeks, five different people who became followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. And their stories are essentially stories of change. The circumstances and the backgrounds vary. These individuals all were from different places, they had different perspectives. But what all of these five individuals have in common is that God, in his great love and kindness and mercy, supernaturally intervened in their lives. And they were changed for the better. And and let's make no mistake, right at the beginning, I want to say this to you right at the start, this is not a boring subject. Let's make no mistake that what's portrayed in the book of Acts, when people are converted, is a very good thing indeed. This is not a boring, stale subject. All of these stories are very dynamic. Now, I wrote something like that paragraph in my notes. Steve's going to do the slides here. And it occurred to me when I read back that paragraph that this is actually a pretty good definition of what Christian conversion is. So, Steve, here we go Christian conversion. Christian conversion starts with God taking the initiative doesn't start with us. It starts with him. Secondly, it it, it involves human beings like us actively responding to God's gracious initiative. And thirdly, as I've already said, it involves radical positive change. So when I read that paragraph back, I thought, well, I'll show you that. It's a good definition. Divine initiative, human response, change for the better. That's a good summary of Christian conversion. Now I have some big reasons for wanting to highlight the importance of Christian conversion. One of them is that it is possible for someone to think that they're a Christian when in actual fact they're not. So that's a big reason for us to think about this subject. It is important that we're clear on this because this is too serious an issue to make wrong assumptions about. But there's a second big reason as well. There's an opposite problem too. It is entirely possible for someone who is a real Christian to think that they're not. They're they're anxious, worried, and afraid they feel weak, and they're not at all sure that they are a Christian, even though, in truth, they are. So, as we look at this idea of Christian conversion, I'm, I'm going to be trying to balance two things. We're all, all of us who are sharing this series are going to be balancing two things. On the one hand, I want to be very clear with some of you, but I don't want to be so clear with those, those of you who I need to be clear with that we crush others. I, I, I want to be clear and sensitive at the same time. So we're going to really try and strike that balance today and as we go through these five stories. If you're a Christian, I hope this series helps you to recapture a sense of the wonder of what God has done for you in your life. This series has been designed for your joy. Maybe your faith is burning low. Maybe at this point in your life, you've forgotten about Jesus. Maybe there's been something going on in your life that has caused you to lose some perspective. If, if that is you... I hope that these talks will lift your eyes up and refresh your tired heart and help you and cause you to praise God again for the great things he's done for you and is doing for you day by day and if if you're not yet a christian or if you're not sure or or maybe you think you are but You'll, you'll discover you're not. <laughs> I hope this little series will clarify powerfully for you what a real Christian is. And I hope it will challenge you to see what you really need. And I also hope, its a lot of hopes this, isn't it? I also hope that this little series will in a sense, warn you not to be apathetic about your relationship with God. Because nothing, in the end, is more important than this. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into Acts next week. So, hope you'll come back and we've whetted your appetite. We'll begin to meet these five people who have experienced conversion Today, I want to go more straight to the horse's mouth, and we're going to hear something of what Jesus says about this whole topic of conversion. So we're going to get into John chapter 3, so keep your finger on that page. First, though, I want to ask a question. It has struck me in my preparation for today, what a combination of of positivity and negativity, there is when we come to think about the idea of Christian conversion. This is a subject that is both utterly glorious and profoundly offensive. It, it, it is a, it, it, the idea of Christian conversion is amazing and troubling. So, here is my question: Is Christian conversion glorious, brilliant, amazing, or is it offensive? Why why on earth would I um, ask a question like that? Why, Why would it be troubling then? One writer I came across said this. To many people, the Christian doctrine of conversion appears anything but beautiful. They say, it's coercive. No one's going to force their beliefs on me. Or they say, it's offensive. Who are you to say that what I believe is wrong? And how I live is wrong. So you see, the idea of conversion contradicts our notions of freedom and tolerance. No one should think that they should or can convert someone else. That implies being judgmental. It implies you thinking that you're somehow better than other people. It implies intolerance of the views and opinions of other people. Claiming that someone needs to be converted is just plain nasty and horrible. Can you, can you hear? I think we all get that, don't we? We understand. I'm sure we all understand. This is the air we breathe in our culture. We, we understand that trying to impose our views on other people can be very harmful and wrong. But I I, want to say this afternoon, this is not the whole story, is it? The idea of someone telling us that we need to change can be deeply offensive. And yet, do we not often have deep in our hearts a deep desire to be able to change. The problem seems to be no one else can say that to us because we'll be like, How dare you? And yet, deep down in our hearts, we, we do, we do often want to know how we can change. I'm not a millennial. Surprise, surprise. Someone was agreeing with me there. Little baby. I'm not a millennial. You know what a millennial is? This is someone who reached their young adult years around the time of the millennium or just after. I, I was looking at some definitions and I worked out. I, I was about 10 years too late. So I'm just a bit too old to be labeled a millennial. Quite a good proportion of you here are millennials though and uh, I'm told that millennials have great and noble aspirations so well done if you're a millennial millennials apparently have great and noble aspirations Uh, for example and these will appear on on the slides I'm, I'm told that millennials do long to live in a better world. There are many problems in our world that definitely need addressing. There are so many things that need to change. Young people are anxious about the future and they long for a better world. Secondly, apparently, if you're a millennial, you'll talk to me afterwards about this, millennials apparently Want to do want to become better versions of themselves. They want to find the best me. Not just a better world, but how can I be a better me? Amidst all of our insecurities and anxieties, we sense, don't we, the shallowness. Of much of what we fill our lives with social media, material things, career aspirations, something nags deep down inside us that says, I, I want to be the best version of me, not the worst version of me. Thirdly, millennials apparently long to be authentic. Hypocrisy is out. We long for deeper relationships, more transparency, better honesty. We want the real deal, not pretense. And lastly, apparently, millennials apparently really appreciate complexity. If you're a millennial, apparently millennials know that life is not black and white. And one way this plays out, we we could talk about this all afternoon, one way this plays out is that we, we have this odd thing going on where we long to be treated as the individuals that we are, while at the same time yearning to belong to some form of community. That, that's a complex issue, isn't it? We want to be treated as individuals, and yet we also want to belong I say all this, not not just to make my talk long, but to point out to you that the idea of Christian conversion is maybe not as crazy as it might sound to modern ears. While we do rightly resist being coerced or forced into change, At the same time, it is true that we know that we're not what we should be. We do know that the world is not what it ought to be. And we do deeply long to be able to change for the better. When we stop and think then, the idea of Christian conversion actually connects to and addresses all of the deepest longings of our hearts so I, I want to suggest we need to be brave here. This is a topic that might sound offensive but actually conversion is God's glorious solution to the need of people in his world. Keep that tension in mind. The glory And the offense, keep that tension in mind as we think about conversion. Let's hear from Jesus then. Um, Christian conversion, essentially, according to Jesus, equals new birth. Um, Steve read to us there from John chapter 3. And a religious man called Nicodemus comes to Jesus to talk to him one night. And Jesus says these stunning words to Jesus. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Keep your finger there in the page. Jesus replied to Nicodemus, Very truly, I tell you, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus defines. This idea of conversion as, as a kind of new birth. That's change, isn't it? To be born again, new birth. And the glory and the offense are there right in that sentence, aren't they? There's the possibility of radical, positive, dynamic, real change. You can be born again. But there's also the reality of blindness. Unless this has happened to you, unless this has happened to anyone in the world, Jesus says, you'll never see the kingdom of God. There's an offense there, but there's a glorious solution there. You see the the two things there in, in one sentence. So let's think about what Jesus says here about conversion. This idea of new birth for a few moments. Under just three headings. We've got three headings. First of all, what the new birth is not. And I suppose it's not a very good title, is it? By implication, what the new birth is. But you'll see what I mean. Just two things under this. First of all, the new birth is not religion. What it is, is a completely new life. Why do I say that? Well, this man's a religious man. <laughs> he comes to Jesus as a religious man. The Bible tells us here that he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were probably the strictest, most scrupulous religious elite, if you like, I don't know what you think of when you think of a religious person, but in this time, a Pharisee would be the epitome of being religious. In other words, you couldn't be more religious than to be a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a fully signed up, card-carrying Pharisee. His credentials were impeccable. But Jesus clarifies here that being religious cannot change a person's heart. The most religious man you could imagine comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him, Mate, you need to be born again. And to be born, surely, is to be alive, isn't it? Jesus here is talking about spiritual life, and he's telling us loud and clear. Here it's like a smack in the face for Nicodemus, isn't it? Anyway, a kind one, but it is, isn't it? Being religious can't make you a new you. What we need is not more religion. What we need is the power of a new life. Secondly something else the new birth isn't here the new birth isn't admiring Jesus but experiencing his power within Nicodemus is very polite here just look again at what he says in verse 2 he came to Jesus at night and he said Rabbi we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. He's not a sceptic. We, we know that God sent you. Why? No one could perform the miracles that you're doing if God wasn't with him. This is a man who is open-minded, sympathetic. He has got respect and admiration for Jesus. He admires what Jesus has done. He concludes that God must be with Jesus for him him to do such things. This is respect and admiration, even sympathy for Jesus. But it's not conversion. Jesus doesn't say to him, oh Nicodemus, I wish everyone could see what you can see, mate. He says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born Again, admiring Jesus even is not new life. Lots of people admire Jesus. I think this is one of the dangers of putting too big an emphasis on miraculous signs. There were people in Jesus' day, like Nicodemus, who saw the miracles that Jesus did, and yet they couldn't really see. They did see, but they couldn't really see. Nicodemus saw miracles. He's sympathetic. Listen, what makes the new birth so glorious is that Jesus is not out there as a figure to be admired and appreciated, talked about and discussed and analysed, But he himself becomes the living source of every good thing we need in here. Jesus is not out there in the new birth. He's in here. We'll come back to that in a moment. There's two things that a new birth isn't and kind of by contrast is. Why is this new birth needed? Sometimes, I think it's true to say that you can only see clearly what the problem is if, if you can see clearly what the solution is. Does that make sense? In this case, if the great solution is that we all, including Nicodemus, need to be born again, that, that must mean that our basic problem is not trivial is it if if our if our main problem was easy to fix perhaps the answer would be a better education or maybe improving our environment or maybe having better friends but if jesus says to nicodemus to a man even like nicodemus you must be born again that that must mean mustn't it that our problem his problem is actually very serious and that it can't be solved by something being done on the outside. Something simple, external. This is a problem that needs more than a plaster putting on it. You must be born again implies something quite serious. The fact that we need to be born again I want to suggest to you is it means that our greatest need as human beings underneath all of our other needs our greatest need is that all of us are spiritually dead I love the way Jesus says it so kindly and so positively here You, you must be born again The reason Nicodemus needs to be born again is because he's spiritually dead. We, we could say this another way too, and we could say it this way. If we don't appreciate the depth or the seriousness of our problem, if you like, if we, if we don't understand the truth of God's diagnosis of what our human problem is, we'll never realise the greatness and the glory of the solution that God has provided for us, will we? What that means is, if, if today, this afternoon, you find Jesus boring, or somehow Jesus feels a little bit out there and irrelevant, it could be, it could be that you are not yet seeing your true need before God. It, it, when we sense what our true condition is, then Jesus becomes extraordinarily precious. It's like when you begin to see the disease, suddenly the cure is like, give me it, give me it. it if you don't know how bad the disease is, the cure will stay on the shelf, won't it? What does it mean then for Nicodemus, for us, for anyone to be spiritually dead? First of all, obviously, Nicodemus is very much alive in this story. He could do many things and he, he comes to Jesus here to talk to him. And this is true of humans generally great achievements are all over human history. But Jesus here definitely seems to have a category, an unusual category here for people who are alive physically, capable of doing things physically, but who are somehow not alive spiritually. There's a category here, I don't know, I'm tempted to call it the living dead, That's that's some kind of zombie film though, isn't it? There's a category here. Nicodemus is alive and yet he's dead spiritually. I want to highlight another passage here. I don't want to confuse you, but we we won't turn to it because I'm going to show it on the screen. This passage dovetails beautifully with everything Jesus says here in John chapter 3. And it'll come up on the screen here so we can read it together. Maybe the text is a bit small. This comes from Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul writing. And this is what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the earth, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead, in transgressions, it is by grace that you've been saved. I do love the way Paul includes himself in this. He's not just being superior here. Did you notice he says, all of us also He and they, together, Paul was a Pharisee too. Earlier on in his life, Paul actually calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Pharisee who was the top of the class over the other Pharisees. And yet he says here, all of us also, we were dead. And we've experienced a supernatural new birth. Now we haven't got time to fully explore two passages, but I want to let me give you three. I want to summarise this under three headings, and that they'll come up before us: Um, capability, status, and destiny. The first thing to say about spiritual death is that Paul says here in Ephesians that. He talks about being dead in their sins. In in other words, like Nicodemus, they could do some good things, but they couldn't, they, they didn't do the things they did do for God and his glory. They didn't do any of it from a love for God, whatever the other reason might have been. In other words, they were incapable of truly loving or submitting to God. They, they were incapable even of seeing and accepting the good news offered to them in the gospel. They, they were somehow incapable even of coming to Jesus and embracing Jesus. You, you, you may know the Bible has lots of ways of describing this. The Bible talks about people having hard hearts. The Bible talks about being in darkness rather than in light. Jesus, in John chapter 3, talks about this very thing in that passage. People loving darkness rather than light. The Bible talks about us pleasing ourselves rather than living to please God. Paul almost uses the language of slavery in this sense that even we, we don't even have the power in ourselves to escape from being like this. There's a helplessness. There's a slavery involved. We're, we're powerless to stop being like what we are. We, we can't change our own hearts. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't. Secondly, when Paul talks about status here, Paul goes further, though, and he reminds the people he's writing to that this 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 isn't just a disability that there's a culpability in it he reminds them that they stood guilty before God in this this is not a disability somehow this is a moral choice. Pope Paul is saying here that we are at heart rebels And that makes us guilty. And so Paul said there in that passage we read, all of us are by nature deserving of God's wrath, his displeasure. So not only are we incapable of changing, our status is one of being guilty before God. And thirdly, destiny We've already seen that it was Jesus himself who said this. If you're still in John 3, Jesus said it very kindly. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Friends, that means no heaven. That means being separated from all that is good. What Jesus is saying there very kindly is that apart from this new birth, our future destiny is truly miserable. Jesus is talking about hell here rather than the pleasure and joy of God's goodness and presence and life and joy. Spiritual death includes all of this. The diagnosis is really bad. There are some things in this world that are bad. This is worse. This is worse than a cancer diagnosis. I I, I don't want to trivialize that. But this is worse than that. The inability to do any real spiritual good. A guilty standing before a good and holy God and a truly awful destiny. This is why the new birth is so utterly amazing. This is why the new birth is not a bit of cosmetic change. Christian conversion is moving from spiritual death to new life. And the new birth that Jesus is talking about here actually reverses all of the negatives we've been talking about. A Christian who has experienced this new birth is not now incapable of doing spiritual good, but has a new power within them. A Christian who has experienced this new birth is not now guilty before God, but declared righteous in Christ A Christian who has experienced this new birth is not now headed for hell, but headed for the glory of heaven. This new birth is utterly transformative. So we've got to ask, how does it happen? How does the new birth come about? How do you get this? (laughs) We all need it. How does it happen? I just want to say three things about this and then we'll be done. Surely the first thing to notice is that this new birth cannot happen without the love of the Father just move it on one more slide Steve because we're going to go back to Ephesians look at what Paul says Paul lists all these terrible things it sounds offensive language and then Paul says but there's a lot of this in the Bible it was like this but God God supernaturally intervening but because of his great love for us. A love that was expressed to us when we were still dead. God who is rich, rich, gloriously rich in mercy. He has sackfuls of mercy, abundantly, gloriously wealthy in kindness and mercy. This God made us alive with Christ. Back in John chapter 3, Jesus himself said, the most famous verse in all the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world. Friends, without this, there would be no hope. the great, compelling, transforming good news of the Christian gospel is that here is a father who loves people who in in themselves are spiritually dead. This is a God who is kind to his enemies, who in reality deserve nothing but his love is greater than our deadness and th- this is the thing that means that we don't have to fear this dramatic dreadful diagnosis god isn't pointing these things out to us to humiliate us or shame us or crush us the reason god tells us the unvarnished truth Is because his heart is moved with pity and kindness. His heart goes out to us in our plight. This is a father who loves sinners like you and me. How does the new birth happen? Well, it can't happen apart from the love of the father. Secondly... coming of the son you you know the end of john 316 jesus goes on to say in john for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son in other words the way this loving father achieves life salvation for you and i is to give Jesus to us for this very purpose. And without this, too, there would be no hope. No Jesus. No salvation. Jesus is the great historical, objective reality. This isn't like a figment of people's imaginations. This loving Father really did send his real son, into time, space, history. He was born and lived and died and rose again. In his great love, this father sends his son to us. In John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus goes on to say, For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So many times, John, in his gospel, some of you know this, he tells us that the life he's talking about in this new birth is essentially Jesus himself. It's a person. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. And that life was the light of man. John chapter 6 verse 35. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. John chapter 11 verse 25. At the grave of Lazarus, Jesus says to his friends, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14 verse 6. Jesus said again to his close friends, the last supper, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. At the end of his gospel, John tells us why he's written his gospel. And he says, I'm writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. Some time ago, we were looking at another letter that this same John wrote, 1 John in the New Testament, John says this clearly, God has given us eternal life. And this life is where? It's in his Son. And listen to this, this is stunning. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So, friends, let's say it loud and clear, there's no new birth apart from Jesus Christ. He himself, in himself, he is the life. How does a new birth happen? It comes through the love of a father. And it's only possible because the son came, lived and died and rose again to save his people. Thirdly, lastly, the breath of the spirit of god the last thing to notice is that this is not something natural this new birth doesn't come about by us coming to the right conclusion about jesus we never would we never would that's what spiritual deadness means we we would never we would never come to this In ourselves. This is supernatural. It is a work of the Spirit of God. This is the greatest miracle. This new birth isn't something that we can bring about ourselves. This new birth is something actually that happens to us. Look at the words of Jesus here. John chapter 3 and verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows Wherever it pleases. It's been blowing a lot in Fire this week, I can tell you. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Like like the wind, the Spirit blows. The Spirit breathes life into dead hearts. And if the life is found in Jesus, surely what we can conclude is that the Spirit breathes life into dead in such a way that it opens our eyes to see the beauty, sufficiency and glory and wonder that there is in Jesus it opens our ears to hear it, our hearts to sense it, to respond to it in faith. The work of the Spirit is to make us alive so that we will see and embrace Jesus. As our life. The work of the Spirit is to unite us to Jesus the Son by faith, so that He Himself becomes our life. I find it very striking here that John records Jesus' words and that this double metaphor of water and the Spirit. I take that to mean that in Jesus there is both cleansing and power. When we come to believe in Jesus and we're united to him, we're cleansed of the past and we receive strength for the future. It's the Spirit of God who unites us to Jesus by faith to make all of this real. Well, I hope that we'll enjoy getting into the book of Acts starting next week and see five examples of this new birth that we're talking about here. But let me close with this. If you're a Christian, remember that you were dead and now you're alive. Because you have a father who loves you. You have a savior who came to live and die for you. And you have the spirit who makes you alive by uniting you to this Jesus by faith. And because of this, you are really clean and you have new power to live face laugh. don't give up none of this is saying that any of us are perfect but if you're a christian you are new and friends if if there's someone here if you're not a christian why not even now, this afternoon, come and put your faith in the Lord Jesus? God, this loving Father, offers him to you. Would you this afternoon receive him, embrace him, and thus experience the miracle of this new birth? Amen.